Extraordinary Terrestrials presents The Eyes That Stare Out From The Dark. Entry As spring approaches, I can't help but suspect that it was all a series of mild night and daymares, brought on by winter's gloom. The trees are budding, the days are longer, and the feeling of doom is less present with each passing moment. I am fine. I will continue to be fine. Still, people keep leaving, as if this is the wrong place to be. The streets are lined with junked furniture, the leftovers of empty apartments and houses put out for trash collection. I find myself wondering if it's time I leave this town as well. Perhaps it is unfortunate that I signed my lease for another year. This apartment is wonderful and affordable, but I'm not so sure I can spend another dreary winter here. B, the supermarket beauty, remains the same, mysterious and out of my reach. This is fine, as long as she remains. I feel a kind of optimistic limbo settling over things. Even if there are more hard times ahead, nothing will compare to this past winter. Entry. All aforementioned optimism is gone. Eradicated. After a sleepless night filled with shouts from downstairs, I left my bedroom this morning and nearly fell flat on my face. I'd tripped. In the middle of my living room, there are two massive indentations in the hardwood floor. They were not there last night. I'm not talking about dents made by the feet of a chair. These hollows are about a foot in length each and go down below floor level several inches in depth. They look like footprints. It's as if someone or something of great weight stood in the middle of my living room and warped the floor. But I've never seen hardwood warp like this before. It's melted. Wood doesn't melt, I know, but something has caused the atoms of my living room floor to rearrange. My first thought was to consult Nate, but his car is absent from the driveway. I can't stay in this apartment right now. Shivering, I record this from my deck. I might go next door and speak with the old man Jim. He might have some kind of input. It's crazy, but I feel I have no other options. I must speak with someone. I want to record our conversation, but I'm frightened to set foot in my apartment at the moment. I haven't even changed from my pajamas. 
Entry After finally welling up enough courage to go back inside, change, and grab my phone, I hurried next door to Jim's. Nothing seemed to have changed in my apartment for the few seconds I was there. I was immediately unnerved by the lack of surprise Jim greeted me with when he opened his peeling door. The landlord and previous tenants had called him slow, but he had no problem remembering my name after I introduced myself, which is something most folks struggle with. My name typically inspires forgetfulness. Jim shook my hand with a frail grip and addressed me by name as he welcomed me into his home. He's a frail creature who has to be at least in his 80s, but there's a slight spring in his walk. I was too polite to ask his age, but I would imagine his strength and longevity comes from frequent bike rides and daily cups of tea. He offered me a cup when I entered his abode, and I was too polite to decline. He had a tidy kitchen with photos of many children and families on the fridge. When I asked if they were his grandchildren, he shook his head with a resigned smile and informed me they were great nieces and nephews, family friends. He then politely pushed the topic of conversation to my visit, offering me a chair and taking a seat himself. I asked him if it was all right if I recorded our words, and he consented. I thought about publishing the recording, but I never actually got Jim's permission to make it public. So I've just now transcribed the conversation, and I will read it. I've changed the names of all parties discussed. Forgive me if my rendering leaves much to be desired. I've never been much of a performer. I'll start. Me. You're sure you don't mind? Jim. Not at all. Ask away. Me. Well, it's kind of a weird thing to ask someone I just met. Jim. Is it a strange thing to ask a neighbor? Me. Could be. You might think I'm crazy for even asking. Jim. I doubt that. Me. Do you know anything about, um, haunted houses or ghosts? Or, I guess, general unexplained phenomena? He interrupted me then with a laugh and said, A few things, yes. Me. Such as? He paused. Upstairs in the attic there is a cat, he said. I've never seen the cat, but I've heard it crying on hot summer days. See, it's reliving the most traumatic moment in its late life. It died up in that hot attic one day, and now all that's left of it is that sad memory. Me. So your house is haunted by a cat in the attic? Jim. It's an old house, and a big house. That cat wasn't the only tenant. Me. You mean... Jim. There's the boy in the upstairs master bedroom. Don't know his story, don't get up there much anymore, but I used to see him every now and then, waiting in the door. Lonesome child. 
Anyhow, my eyes aren't what they used to be. Me. You've seen one? Jim. Seen them, yes, mostly in the corner of my eye. Heard them, smelled them, but more often than not, felt them. There's one stair on the staircase, from the second to third floor. You stand on that one step, you can feel someone standing right behind you. Just that one step. They must have been a tall one. That one gives me the willies. Me. So you say there's many? Jim. In this house, yes. They're my company. Me. Are any in this room? Jim. Not right now. Me. Right now? Is... He shushed me and told me to listen. In the recording, there's a slightly audible creaking noise, but it was, it was much louder in person. It was the ceiling above the kitchen. It easily could have just been the house settling. Me. What's that? Jim. Still telling her grandson to fetch her the footrest, even though he's surely older than her by now, or rather older than she was when she... You know. Me. I'm not sure. Jim. I swear all she does is knit and holler for that grandson so she can stretch those invisible legs of hers while she works. He laughed. And then said, It begs the question why even bother coming back at all if you're just going to knit for the rest of eternity. Me. Do you tell the children next door about all the... the inhabitants of this house when they come to visit you? Jim. You mean Ginny and Dawn? So you know them too, then? Me. Well, from afar. I don't... uh, we haven't talked, really. Jim. I've told them a few stories, but none of the frightening ones. Me. There are frightening ones? Jim. There is a basement. But why do you mention the kids? Me. I was wondering, a few months back there was some sort of incident in their house one night, I'm sure you recall. Lots of sirens and emergency vehicles? At this point, Jim's face fell. It was obvious he'd been having fun until now, telling me ghost yarns and probably fabricating some. But the mentioning of the fire trucks next door turned him serious. He told me he recalled. And I asked, What happened? Was there a fire? Jim. There was fire. Me. So it wasn't, as you might say, one of the frightening ones. Jim. Not like the ones in my house. The basement has a gibbering, delirious, fearful soul. He fell victim to illness and fever. Was quarantined down there during his last dying days. He cries out like the cat, he'll throw things at you, but you always know he's there. The thing Don woke up to, it was quiet. It hadn't meant to be detected. I suspect it was a silent observer. 
There was a pause here in which I shivered. The tape obviously didn't catch me shivering. I asked him, You say there was a fire? Jim, let's just say they don't go in that room anymore. Me, what room? Jim, the boys' room. That's where it happened. I didn't see it, only heard about it later. Don woke and he said he felt something watching him. He said, uh, he said it was hot and it made him feel sick. Couldn't see it in the dark, but knew it was there, based on where the heat was coming from. Screamed for his parents, and in so doing, woke his sister in the other room. She runs in to find out what's wrong with her kid brother. Their dog is yapping at something in the corner, and the kids are screaming, too frightened to move. I could hear the whole ruckus from over here. Thought about calling the cops. Me. Thought about calling the cops? Jim. Well, I was worried, but I thought, you know, kids scream all the time. Sometimes at night when they have bad dreams. Like you and your neighbor. Anyway, in the end, Marie, that's the mother, she burst into the bedroom and grabbed Dawn. She told me it was like an oven in there chilly fall night, and it was a hundred degrees. She had that same feeling that somebody or something was in there. But she didn't wait to find out who. They got the hell out, slammed the door, and ran out to the car. Me. And the fire? Jim. Shortly after she shut the door of Dawn's bedroom... Marie told me that there was some kind of explosion, a white flash under the doorframe, and then smoke pouring out through the cracks. I heard it. It was after I heard that big boom that I decided to call the cops. Me. And you know all this because just after they got out, they came here. Jim. Soon as the police and firefighters showed up, Fortunately, the fire didn't spread. They put it out quick smart. There was only one casualty. The chocolate lab burned to nothing. Me. That's too bad. Jim. Well, better the dog than the kids, if you ask me. Poor, stupid thing. Me. And the room? Did they fix it back up, or was it beyond repair? Jim. All I know is Donnie isn't staying there anymore. It's destroyed. It holds bad memories, and to be honest, they're not entirely sure that it's empty. But Marie doesn't like to talk about it. Gives her the willies. Can't blame her. I was even shaken. That's all I know of the matter. I try not to ask. Don't want to stir the mud. Me. So if I were to ask them about it, they'd be less than willing to share? Jim. That's my guess, but I'm not sure myself. Andy, he's the dad, might be more candid with you than Marie or the kids, but again, I'm not sure. Me. Well, you've been very helpful, and I thank you for that. 
Jim. You're not even going to tell me why you're here, asking me these things? Me. Well, Jim. You don't have to tell me. I know. I saw it on your face the moment I opened the door. You're frightened. Me. I am. Yes. Jim. You know why people fear the dark? Me. Because we fear the unknown. Jim. No! The unknown is bunk. The unknown could be anything, and people don't just fear anything. If there's a funny shape in the dark, you're not afraid that it might be a vacuum cleaner, or a tadpole, or a bowl of pasta. People fear the dark because they fear that someone or something is staring back out at them from the dark. A pause followed in which I tried to find the right words. He was giving me an expectant look. I couldn't decide how much to tell him. Me. I witnessed something inexplicable and I'm shaken by it. Jim. And when a human being is frightened by the inexplicable, the first thing they do is, of course, me. Um... Jim, the first thing they do is try to find an explanation. Me, oh, yes. Jim, well, I'll tell you now, my name omitted. The more you look for an explanation, the more the questions will breed and multiply. For instance, I know there's a dead cat spirit trapped in torture in my attic, but I don't know how, I don't know why, and worst of all, I don't know how to help it. All I know is how to coexist with it. All your neighbor knows is how to forget his nightmares just after having them. Me. So you've heard him too, I take it. Jim. Yes, I've heard the two of you. Me. What? Jim. I've heard both of you. He thought I hadn't heard him, and said this louder. I was speechless, which was why he realized something was off. He said, Isn't that why you're frightened? Because of the nightmares? It's all night the two of you go, him screaming about the floors and you screaming about the ceiling. It's almost a constant volley until you wake up because you're the lighter sleeper or something me. I scream about ceilings in my sleep? Jim. Yes, you didn't know? Me. I thought it was just my neighbor screaming. I... Jim. It's a wonder anyone gets rest in this town. With the bellowing in my basement, the cat in my attic, the two of you, the incident next door, and all the sirens. Every day, the sirens... Me. Mr. Jim's last name omitted. I thank you for your time, but I have to go. Jim. Oh, of course. Are. Do come by again. I'm not sure I can help you, but company is always welcome. 
Me. I appreciate it. I really must be going, but thank you. I left in a hurry, practically running out of his house. I was hoping to find Nate back home from work, but he still was absent. Driven equally by curiosity and a strong aversion to my own apartment, I made my way to his door. It was locked. I peered in the window and tried to catch a glimpse of his living room ceiling where the indentation should be, but I couldn't see from my angle. All I could observe was the stark bareness of his apartment. I'd only been inside a few times, but I recalled it being considerably more furnished than it was now. Then I noticed the paper that had fallen when I opened the screen door. A note. It read... I've seen and heard enough. I'm leaving. Whoever is reading, I suggest you do the same. Nate. As I read the note, a car flew by on Main Street in a hurry. A Weimaraner's head protruded from the back window. The dog barked all the way down the road, out of view and beyond. I've written many times about the dogs in this town and how they seem in a constant, agitated state... I hadn't even noticed the cats. That is, I hadn't noticed their disappearance. Usually there are cats everywhere. The strays and domestics mingling after sundown, all of them becoming the same wild kind of scavenger by night. They yowl and fight, screech lustful melodies while in heat. They surprise you in your driveway with knowing eyes when you come home from work. They pick and tear at bags of trash while you sleep. They are gone. I haven't seen a single cat in what seems like months. Not even the evidence of cats. I cower now on my porch, still afraid to go inside and face the inexplicable. Instead, I stare at a bag of trash I set out yesterday. It is intact and untouched. Entry. Still unable to spend extended time in my apartment, I stepped in for a few seconds just to grab my car keys. As before, nothing had changed. I could hardly bring myself to glance at the living room floor, though it seemed to be the same as this morning. I needed to get away. That being said... I wasn't ready to make as rash a decision as my downstairs neighbor. Even with the two footprints in the living room, my apartment is nice. I'm torn about having a sudden reason to feel alienated by it. So, unlike Nate, I did not skip town. Instead, I simply drove to the supermarket. I will not deny the fact that my main motivation was in hopes of seeing B there. Her cool demeanor and stunning perfection has a calming effect. She is a reminder that there is still good in this town, on this planet. As I drove, I considered the possibility that today I was feeling insane and lonely enough to even try striking up a conversation with her. 
it wasn't until I walked through the automatic doors that I remembered most people go to the supermarket to purchase groceries. I found myself in the non-food medicinal aisles wandering past antacids and laxatives. I hadn't spotted her yet, and the hopeless thought that she wasn't working today threatened my rationality. Maybe she was on her lunch. Maybe she was out for a smoke. Maybe she was a smoker. I imagined B with smoke curling around the two fingers holding her cigarette, drifting down like a fog settling over the eye tattoo on her arm. No advertisement could make poison look better. I almost didn't notice how quiet the store was. Almost. There were a few people about, but less than one would anticipate for a morning on the weekend. Those who did shop did so frantically, with dark circles under their eyes and glances over their shoulders. Except for the older ones. The senior citizens milled about with the kind of indifference of seasoned hurricane veterans, watching as another set of storm clouds rolled in to threaten their stubbornly cherished homes. They would never leave. Maybe I should leave. I rounded a corner into the fruits and vegetables and spotted her. Finally. She was assisting an elderly woman who had mistaken her for one of the produce associates. The silly old woman hadn't noticed that this employee had no apron and wore a three-quarter sleeve shirt instead of the menial polos of all other employees. Even though it was obvious she was of the higher floor manager tier, B took on the task with perfect dignity, helping the woman get a produce bag open as if it were a normal part of her job. As if she wasn't simply in the produce section because it was on the way to the break room. I noticed I was staring around the same time that I noticed the bags under B's eyes, like everyone else's. Was anyone getting sleep in this damn town? I continued to stare, wondering if B was as worried and frightened as I was, if she too felt insane with paranoia and confusion. The old lady took the idiocy one step further in asking that B pick out and bag six perfect apples for her. There was a mote of exasperation in B's body language in that moment. She sighed, and the smile fell out of her eyes. Then those eyes met mine. My insides seized. She didn't want to be here. The sudden need to comfort her, to inform her that she could leave, that everything would be okay and safe elsewhere, struck me. I looked away quickly. It was a stupid thought. As if I, of all people, could make someone else feel sane. I was the apex of insanity, visiting the supermarket because I was afraid of my own apartment and could only find comfort in stalking the floor manager. Still, talking to her would make me feel less like a stalker and more like a normal human being. A human being pursuing a desire. My heart pounded in my ears. I was just about to head B's way 
when my phone interrupted. She was calling. Of course she would call right now. I answered, quelling the urge to start the conversation with harsh words. She sounded tired and awkward. She was just as thrilled to talk to me as I was to her. This came as a slight relief. She informed me she was leaving town. I didn't ask for a reason. I asked if her new roommates were okay with that. She told me they had already left town. She told me she was scared and she didn't know why. I told her I was scared too. I didn't tell her that I knew why I was scared. An odd thought hit me then. It almost brought sense to everything. This is what happens when an entire town feels watched. She asked me if I planned to leave as well. I wasn't sure. She told me she'd be staying with her folks down south for a bit, and there was an extra sofa if I needed a place. I interrupted her and told her I had a place, if need be, and then I felt like a jerk for saying it. She's so good at making me feel like a jerk. All she has to do is give in. She gave in and told me to just take care of myself anyway. I thanked her and suggested she do the same. Then she said goodbye. I hung up and remembered where I was. B had vanished, so had the old lady with her carefully selected apples. I felt ugly, but I felt better. She's leaving town. She's too afraid to find out what she's afraid of. I'm not done yet.
The Eyes That Stare Out From The Dark is an Extraordinary Terrestrials production. It was written, read, and recorded by Miriam Rimkunis. Music and art are also by Miriam Rimkunis. All rights reserved. The Sirens were recorded by Freesound user LG. A link to their recording is in the show notes, which is where you can also find links to the podcast's social media, website, and Patreon. Join me next week for part four. 